Well, this time I'm going to ask Brian to come up and preach, and when he's done, he'll close out the service. On a personal note, really briefly before we begin, I just want to say thank you. It's really a pleasure to be back with you. It was great to bring my wife and some of our family along with me this time. And as we pray and as we search through along the support path and see who it is that the Lord would have us partner with for the sake of Germany, in his great providence, he chose you guys among many churches. And so we're very pleased, very thankful for your partnership, more so that God has brought us together for the sake of the gospel in Germany. And after the service, we would love to talk to you more about that and just get to know you. So thank you again for that. just wanted to take this brief opportunity to do that. This morning, though, we're going to hear from the Lord from Mark chapter 10. So if you have a copy of the Word of God, please turn to Mark chapter 10. A familiar story probably to many of you, but an important one nonetheless. Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 27. This is the word of the Lord. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished, and they said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, truth be told, if we closed our Bibles and walked away, we would have heard enough. For this is your word. This is truly God-breathed, spoken to us today, your people, for your purposes. Lord, for your purposes to convict us. As we have just heard in our confession, Lord, we are sinful, broken people. And this text, in probably many ways, some very clear, some nuanced, affects all of us differently, but equally in the sense that we need that conviction. It speaks to so many painful, dark corners of our hearts that We are often unwilling to acknowledge. And I pray this morning that your word would pierce those portions of our hearts and they would bring us to life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see clearly who we truly are left unto ourselves. And in that way, Lord, you would also give us your grace. Lord, this word speaks a great truth to us. 
as we were assured in our pardon, Lord, you have done great things. You have done many, many things that we never deserved on our behalf. And I pray, Father, this morning that each and every one of us, in the particular ways that our hearts need to hear this morning, that you would speak and remind us of the gospel. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Oftentimes when we read scripture, we tend to have this terrible habit. We tend to separate ourselves from the characters within the story. Though consciously we know stories like this and so much of the New and Old Testament is true, real history, we still maintain this tendency to place a distance between ourselves. And I don't just mean because they did things differently, they wore different clothes, they spoke different languages, they ate different food, or they lived in a different time and place. But really, we separate ourselves from their character, right? We see the Abrahams and the Sarahs, the Jacobs, the Esaus, the Davids, the Daniels, the Peters, and the Pauls, and so on, as these special other people, instead of the true and ordinary people that they were that they were in their day and in many ways are just like us. We read stories of the Bible as if we're talking about superheroes sometimes or about villains and separate and distance ourselves from them. The superheroes, you know, they're far more faithful, far more consistent, far more spiritual than we could ever hope to be, right? And the enemies, the villains, well, they're far more wretched and sinful and evil than I ever will be. And what I want to suggest to us this morning as we approach this text from God's word is that what we see throughout the entirety of scripture are not superheroes or villains, but ordinary people. We see ordinary people who are living out the realities of the Christian life. And we see ordinary people who are trapped in unbelief or are clinging to unbelief. Paul, David, Moses, these men are not unique men. Certainly they had unique callings, but they are Christians. They are using the gifts and the faith in accordance with the measure of Christ's gift. And we get to see the outcome of their faith. Similarly, Pharaoh, Goliath, Pilate, people like this, they're also not unique. These are men who are simply unbelievers, portraying various aspects of worldliness and life apart from the regenerative and renewing power of the Holy Spirit. And in separating ourselves from these characters and in seeing ourselves as something else, what we miss is that these people are either just living out what it really means to be justified and sanctified and growing in grace, or we're missing the areas in our life where we continue to walk in the wicked ways of the world and where we continue to cling to worldliness as we did prior to faith. And in so doing, we, in effect, dull the power of the gospel in our lives settling for far less, and at the same time soften the reality of evil and sin before a holy God. Simply put, we misunderestimate the Holy Spirit, the gospel, and ourselves. And in so doing, we set ourselves on a course for what is arguably the most dangerous place in all of Scripture, and that is the place of self-deception. Our text today tempts these tendencies within us, tempts our tendency to separate ourselves when we see a man like this, we focus often on his otherness, how, the offensive pride. How could he possibly look Jesus in the face and say, yeah, I've done all those laws? We focus on his complete ignorance. Clearly the man doesn't know there's a lot more to the law than just living it out this way. We focus on his unwillingness to accept Jesus' offer. He walked away. But I don't think it's just the rich young ruler that we sit in judgment of either. 
I think Jesus himself, if we're being honest, can uh, irritate this tendency within us. I mean, what kind of evangelism is this, Jesus? This man comes to you with arguably the easiest, most softball question you can imagine. How can I inherit eternal life? Any of you who have shared your faith before would plead for that opportunity, for somebody to walk up to you and say, how can I have eternal life? And what is Jesus doing? Why did he handle it this way? Why did he say the things he said? Why was he mysterious and difficult? Why didn't he just give him the gospel? And then, worst of all, why didn't he chase the man down when he left? If the, certainly, if, the rich, if, he, if Jesus had just asked the rich young ruler to pray the sinner's prayer or to say, you know what, I see you've got a lot of questions. Why don't you come to our small group or our Bible study and we'll work out those things. I have no doubt that man would have eagerly come and have been a part of that group. In fact, he probably would have loved it. And so this is our warning today. As we consider that, our premise today is that to the extent that we focus on these aspects of the rich young ruler or these aspects of Jesus... We become like the rich young ruler. Or said another way, to the extent we sit in judgment over the rich young ruler or over Jesus, we become the rich young ruler. And let's go to the text and see how that happens today. We're going to look at some principles from this text. We'll certainly not cover everything you could, but our hope is that we will learn how to better guard and fortify ourselves against self-deception. And so first, our first principle this morning is that we, be, we become like the rich young ruler when we misunderstand goodness. We, mi- we become like the rich young ruler when we misunderstand goodness. And does, to start, we'll start in verse 17. I think a fair summary of verse 17, the beginning of this story, would be this. A good man asking a good teacher a good question. Because no, make no mistake, the rich young ruler really is a good man. He is deeply concerned with his faith and his religious life. He is believably perfect as to the law. And what I mean when I say that is Paul himself, if you read, for example, in Philippians 3, he gives a little bit of his resume and says, yeah, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. And he goes on and on and even says, as to the law, I was blameless. I was perfect. So in his understanding, this man is believably perfect. He was obviously successful in his career, being a ruler at a young age implies that he was probably a local synagogue leader, with, which at that time would have been a very impressive promotion. He was a community leader, and he was wealthy. And so by any standard, he is good. In fact, I would venture to guess that he could probably be and would be an elder in the PCA. He clearly knows a lot about Jesus. Why? Well, because such a man like this would never be seen running. Running at this time for that type of person was embarrassing and dishonorable. He kneels. A posture of this man's stature, a posture of this man's status that he never would have taken. It's a posture of respect and honor and humility. And he calls him good, something that that man would not take for granted. And so whether his intention was noble or to flatter, he clearly knows a lot about Jesus, his teaching, his miracles, and his life. And whoever Jesus may be, he clearly comes from God. The locals, The everyday people, the Pharisees, the ruler, everybody was acknowledging this at this time in Jesus' ministry. And so who better to ask? And then what a perfect question. If you get one shot to ask a guy like Jesus a question, can you think of a better one? How can I inherit eternal life? And so all of this seems to be setting us up for this great, wonderful story to just show us the goodness of God and this man. But Jesus takes it in a very different direction, doesn't he? Immediately. He questions the, man, questions the man's use of the word 
good. I dare say even in our day, good is rarely used correctly. Talking about goodness as a thing unto itself. What we, what we more, far more often mean when we use the word good today and now is, is actually what we, when we're trying to use the word better. We're making a comparison instead of speaking about a thing unto itself. When people are good, what we really mean is they're better than us, or they're better than normal, or better than expected. Or if you know, we put a group of people here to say, are you good at you know, pick something, football or any other kind of sport? There'd be a line in the middle, and the people below it would be bad, and the people below it would be good. They're better. Goodness is not a thing any longer, but a mere comparison. A second way we more often use good in our day and age is really just describe personal preference. That food is good. Our church is good. That movie was good. Or in other words, I like it. It meets my expectations. It aligns with what I think is good. It is good, dot, 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 for me. Very rarely do we ever find someone using the word good nowadays outside of these two possibilities. But it's very important for us to hear and know what Jesus says here. He says that no one is good. And you could argue, fill in the blank there too, is nothing is good apart from God. There's no relativity. There's no spectrum or scale. There's no subjectivity. Jesus authoritatively and objectively defines true goodness And in so doing, challenges both this young man, but also our understanding of goodness and more to the point, of God. And this is important because if we don't understand true goodness, if we don't see it in terms of God, then we can't understand God, nor can we understand his law. The law is just simply a revelation of God's nature, of his character. It is who he is. It's not a better way, and it's not the preferred way. It is the way. In verse 18, we see that part of the law, at least, is used as a metric for goodness. The rich young ruler, though, and Jesus see two very different results. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, I've kept all these things. Or in other words, I'm good. I'm doing what God has said. But yet he couldn't be further from the truth. His superficial, shallow understanding of goodness have deceived him. And his superficial understanding of the law and its demands have also deceived him. But I would ask us, what good things in our lives are deceiving us? Are our habits, our lifestyle, our ministry, our jobs, our marriage or family, our goals, our Bible reading or devotions or memory verses, our church, our education or experiences or relationships? What good things in our life are keeping us from seeing true goodness or, more to the point, our lack thereof? Far too often we wear our good things in life as fig leaves. And instead of using them and enjoying them as good things unto themselves to glorify the Lord, we use them to outshine our failings and our recurring sin and our weaknesses to temptation and self-absorption. C.S. Lewis writes at length about this tendency within us and the problem of pain, for example. And to make it brief, he uses tennis as an example, but even if you don't know tennis, I think you'll understand what he means. Far too often when we're playing a game like that or golf or something, we tend to build up our great shots and say, this is normal. This is who I am. This is the great shot. Of course I made that shot. And then when we make the mistakes, which are probably far more often, especially if you play like myself, we tend to say, well, that was abnormal. That was unusual. I'm normally not like that. We exaggerate our success and our goodness and downplay our failure. We take credit for the great shots And we act as if the 
the poor or misfortunate parts about us are unusual. Uh, We live oftentimes in this world as if Christianity, like so many other world religions, is a final tally sheet. As long as my good things outweigh my bad things, I'm all right. But that is not Christianity, brothers and sisters. That is not Christianity. Romans 3 says there is no one good, no, not one. Let us not, church, ignore our sins because of our apparent goodness. And what a terrifying position it would be to be this man. Consider for yourself for a moment how foolish and how terrifying it would be to stand before the living and holy God and say, I'm good. We must, not, we must have a right understanding of goodness. Our lives, everything about us, are only good when they conform to the nature of God. Not by comparison, not by personal preference, but by God alone. We become the rich young ruler when we misunderstand what is good. Secondly, we become the rich young ruler when we misunderstand love. Following the rich young ruler's very earnest, though misguided declaration, Mark uniquely declares or includes this little excellent statement. In verse 21, he says, looking at him, Jesus loved him. Is probably what most of your translations say, or felt a love for him. But I'm quite sure that many of you know this story well, but it would be interesting, would it not, to poll an audience that had really never heard the story before and ask them the question, do you think what Jesus did here was loving? Would you have called that the most loving response? I think it's nonetheless worthwhile to ask ourselves this. How do we feel about Jesus' treatment of this man? Does our personal views of evangelism or of loving the lost or of loving one another square with what he's done there? Or does it indict Jesus? To the extent, or better question, to what extent has Jesus broken our rules of personal evangelism or of love? And what does this say about our view of love? Because I would continue with you here that all modern views of love are dashed on the rocks of Jesus' response to this man. He is not tolerant. He is not inclusive. He does not accept this man despite the truth. He does not allow this man to make his own path or discover his own way, and he certainly does not encourage this man to some shallow sentiment of self-actualization. What does he do? He hurts the man. The man left, according to verse 22, grieving. Another word there in the original text would have been bewildered or appalled. The man is shell-shocked. This is exactly opposite of what he expected to happen from this encounter with Jesus. It is the pain of realizing there is no good, no, not one. This man is experiencing the pain of realizing that apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus, in effect, stabs the man with the double-edged sword, God's word, and he's pierced to the heart. His thoughts and intentions, just like the writer of Hebrews tells us, are brought to the surface. He's exposed, he's revealed, and what we see is a man embarrassed. Make no mistake, though, while the truth is painful, Jesus nonetheless speaks us with a heart of love. Just as any true doctor, he's not interested in treating the man's symptoms. He's not interested in easing the man's pain or simply giving him medication or a band-aid to slap on it. He is interested in curing the disease itself. He is not willing to remain superficial. He is not willing to remain religious. He's unwilling to allow this man to go his own way or to remain blind because he loves him too much for that. Said another way, Jesus is prioritizing prioritizing what is good, what we just spoke about. And he simply calls on the man to do the same. You're valuing one thing, but I think you need to prioritize what is truly good. This is love. 
To be sure, what the man has done, attempting to follow the law, living an excellent life, having wealth, so much of this stuff is, is and can be good, but in this man's life, it's wrongly prioritized. A true love for the Lord prioritizes him above all else. And accordingly, his word, his authority, his kingdom, and his glory all come along with that as our prioritize. Because I dare say to prioritize is to love. And because scripture clearly demonstrates that it is upon the heart that God looks, not the superficial, and from the heart that God demands our love, it is the heart itself that Jesus prioritizes. He prioritizes both the Lord and the man in doing what he does here by cutting through the protective pedigree and resume, through bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and he prioritizes the man's heart and the problems therein. If this man is to have a true relationship with God and to have a truly good heart, it must be the heart that is prioritized, and that's precisely what we see. And so we have to ask ourselves, church, does this same priority characterize our relationship with God? We must ask ourselves, does this same priority characterize our church's ministry to other people? Or are we living in some level of self-deception? Are we living as if there really is something more important? Maybe we wouldn't say it, but functionally it becomes true. Our programs, people, social or philosophical values, there's so many things that can contend for the priority of your heart and your church and your ministry. Jesus' call to this man is consistent with his call to us. May we, here at Roebuck Presbyterian, place God on the throne of our hearts individually and collectively. May we seek God before all else. And may we not use a shallow relationship with God as some means of personal fulfillment, but may we instead use our life as an avenue to be with the Lord. For where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Let us each examine ourselves. Thirdly, we become the rich young ruler when we serve two masters. We become the rich young ruler when we misunderstand goodness. We become the rich young ruler when we misunderstand love. And we become like him when we serve two masters. At verse 21, when Jesus looked at him and felt a love for him, Jesus finally arrives at the answer to the man's original question. What must he do to inherit eternal life? And what we see, though not literally, is that Jesus gives the man the same answer that he's been giving since chapter 1 of Mark, which is to repent and to believe. Up to this point... This man's faith has been profitable for him. He's actually gained by the things that he's believed. His current life has provided him wealth and position, power and fame. And socially and financially, being a part of the church, being a part of religion, has very much been a benefit. It's been a lucrative investment of his time. And I would just say as a quick aside, let us be warned that any time we have a profitable faith, sure, we will bear much fruit in Christ. Not to diminish that at all. But anytime we gain in a worldly way from being a part of a church, whether that's not just money, but socially or in terms of our reputation, let us be warned that that can be lethal to our faith, deadly to our soul. Do not be a a demus. To be sure, though, I still really believe in the sincerity of this man's heart. But that doesn't negate the fact that he is competing now for a religion of works and a love for God the Father. And Jesus is forcing his hand. Just like we see with the prophets of Baal and Elijah, Elijah calls the Israelites to quit hesitating or literally limping between two opinions. Jesus, somewhat delicately, but definitely, calls the man's duplicity to light. And as a masterful teacher, indirectly 
but unmistakably says, the time has come. You cannot serve two masters. But to this man, as we see and have seen in the story, on this day, Jesus is asking too high of a price. The cost too great. This man who was so enthusiastic, who was so excited, so eager to meet Jesus and figure out what he needed to do to earn eternal life. But now, Jesus, to use the example again, like a skilled doctor, has observed the symptoms, questioned the soul, and is making a diagnosis. Borrowing a comparison from Pastor Alistair Begg, suppose there's a man who has terminal cancer, but with one life-saving procedure, everything can be changed. In preparation for the operation, he goes to the doctor for a consultation to hear about what's going to be involved in the surgery. And what he hears is very difficult. The surgery is going to be extremely invasive and extremely painful and will require a lengthy, lengthy recovery period that will involve significant amounts of physical therapy and very powerful medication with terrible side effects. And on top of that, it will just be months of general discomfort. In fact, the man will never be able to return to his old way of life. But the procedure is necessary because without it, he will die. But can you imagine, after consideration, a man who says, no, that's far too great a cost. I can't endure it. I know I need it, but I'm not willing to do it. This, friends, is the picture of the grieving young ruler. He is the anti-Abraham, possessed by possessions, unwilling to step out in faith and surrender his trust and his love of possessions. He's unwilling to trust and treasure God above all else. He has a great life. And he's trying the impossible task now of serving two masters. And I wonder, I think it's equally applicable to us, how much do our great lives cause us the same trouble? <clears throat> While we may not struggle with wealth particularly, do any other aspects of our comfortable 21st century American first world life ever obscure our vision of the Lord? Do they ever confuse our hearts about its true and right priority? Because like I said, maybe money isn't your competing desire, but I dare say, how would you react if a family member was taken? Or your home, your car, your medical care or insurance, your food, your church, your kids or their education or life opportunities? Your preferred clothing or internet or entertainment. Maybe something more abstract. What if your memories were taken or your dreams or your worldly hopes? Would these things crush you? Would they shipwreck your faith? Would we, like the rich young ruler, say, this is too much, Lord, and walk away? Or would we, like the Christians mentioned in Hebrews 10, joyfully accept the loss of all things, knowing that we in Christ have a better possession and a lasting one? Is our grip on these otherwise good worldly things loose enough that should they be demanded or should they compete for the throne of our heart that we would let them go? Jesus himself says on the Sermon on the Mount that we must be willing to cut off hand or eye for the sake of the kingdom. Martin Lloyd-Jones says you cannot be a Christian and a worldling at the same time. You must choose. Quoting from 1 John, he tells the church, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone does love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever.
Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. We cannot serve two masters. Who sits upon the throne of our heart? Lastly, this morning, we become like the rich young ruler when we attempt to do this life on our own. When we misunderstand true goodness, when we misunderstand love, when we try to serve two masters, and now lastly, when we attempt to do this life on our own. The rich young ruler has walked away, but the disciples, as you may have seen and realized, are still there. And this episode has been amazing and deeply concerning to the group gathered. They have listened and they observed, and clearly they do not think, they have no illusions that Jesus is literally asking this man to give up everything he had. Because even they, mostly poor men who have given up largely all that they have in this world, have followed Jesus. And they still arrive at the same question as the rich young ruler. They say, how may we be saved? Or in other words, how can we get eternal life? In many ways, I suspect the rich young ruler and even some of us wish that that literally was all we had to do. I dare say for $10 billion, virtually all of us would give up everything we had, knowing what we would gain. How much more would we sell everything we had if we really could get eternal life that way? But, friends, eternal life, as we know, is far more costly than that. It's far more expensive. And worse yet, we don't have anything of value to pay for it. Inheriting eternal life, being saved, repenting and believing, these things are impossible. In the words of Paul in Romans 8, those of us in the flesh cannot please God. This man's superficial understanding of goodness and following of the law, his infection of worldliness, and ultimately his selfish idolatry would have never paid off. They were, they were too inexpensive, and he had nothing for which to give. Even if he'd sold everything he'd owned, even if he'd given up his own life, he never could have purchased it. Because that was never the real problem. The real problem that we're often deceived by, lurking behind the scenes in the story, is this. This man, this rich young ruler, looked Jesus, looked God in the face, and didn't know him. He does not have a relationship with God. He does not know God. That is the real problem lurking throughout this entire story. He has no idea who he is. If you believe the words of John 17, which say, and this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent, then this man's original question begins to look a lot more foolish. He has no idea that he is looking eternal life in the face when he asks, how can I inherit eternal life? Because he doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. As the elders of Israel described by Ezekiel, they have set up idols before their faces and placed stumbling blocks before their, their eyes. This man's vision is equally blocked by the idols of his heart and idols that he himself has set there. Friends, Christianity is not trying to do good. It's not trying to put our best effort forward. But instead, it is a poverty of spirit, a death of the old, the old completely being gone and taken out. It is wholly other. It is a newness, a rebirth, new life in Christ that we get. And with man, this is impossible. We cannot satisfy God in the flesh. Any effort, anything we do at our very best will always fail. As the prophet Jeremiah rhetorically asks, can can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Or can a leopard change his spots? No, it's impossible. Any area of our lives rooted in our efforts will fail, 
Any effort towards salvation, redemption, justification on our parts will reveal a heart just like that of the rich young ruler. We are powerless in our efforts to change ourselves and to save ourselves. But friends, there's good news. Do not miss the last verse of this text. Verse 27 when he says, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. We serve a God, church, that is continuously and faithfully and seemingly doing the impossible for the sake of his people. Just consider your Bible for a moment. He he showed impossible grace and mercy to Adam and Eve. Impossibly saved Noah and his family from worldwide destruction. Impossibly gave a 90-year-old Sarah a baby. Impossibly destroyed the greatest empire of the day, Egypt, through ten plagues. Then parting a sea for his people to walk through on dry ground. Raining manna from heaven, springing water from rocks, crushing the walls of Jericho, uh, maintaining a remnant through the dark days of judges and kings, enabling and giving favor to people who seemingly were distant and in captivity from God, like Nehemiah and Esther, restoring the manifold fortunes of Job, and wielding power over all forms of nature, animals, as seen in Jonah and Daniel, Fire, as seen with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and even the very mind of man, as seen in Nebuchadnezzar. And if that's not impossible and amazing enough for you, he himself became a man. A truly good man, sinful, living a perfect and obedient life. He was born of a virgin, born under the law, living the sinless perfect life, and suffering and enduring all things for the sake of rebellious, hateful, and sinful people. Not only this, in the end of his days, was abandoned, betrayed, denied, beaten, spit upon, whipped, unjustly condemned, and ultimately crucified. And impossibly, as Isaiah tells us, this pleased the Father. And Jesus prioritized the will of the Father. What did he say in Gethsemane? He used the same language of verse 27. Father, if it's possible, is it possible to take this cup from me? And we know the answer. It was not. Our salvation, apart from his acts on our behalf, was impossible. And thus, he became obedient to death, even a death on the cross. And if that wasn't impossible enough, he defeated death, rising again, ascending into heaven and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is through this impossible act that he has bought and provided our new life. If you want to know the answer to the question, how can I inherit eternal life, It is received by faith in him alone. His gracious, impossible acts on our behalf and believing unto those, trusting and loving him with all of our hearts. As the great hymn, Rock of Ages, declares, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Friends, let us not deceive ourselves. Let us open our eyes and fix them upon Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who has gone on to do these things and enable these things for us. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are impossible with God. Let's pray. Father, you are God who does the impossible. Far too often we have a a silly or superficial idea of what that actually means. But I pray here, now, and in this place 
we would know deep in our hearts that that impossible is our salvation. Lord, we are wayward, rebellious, sinful people. But you demonstrate your love for us, your priority for us, when you say that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can't imagine that impossible love, that impossible mercy, that impossible grace. We cannot imagine the impossible way by which we can be saved. So far, far, far too often, we come to you like the rich young ruler, hoping that we can declare to you the goodness we've done, hoping that we is just one more little thing we can add to our lives, that we might be with you, that we might be equals with you. I pray, Lord, today that we would understand true goodness and our lack thereof. I pray that we would understand true love and not settle for less. I pray that we would slay and destroy all other competing masters of our hearts and exalt you as Lord alone. And I pray that we would stop trying to do this life on our own. That we would cling to you and your promises. That we would find salvation and rest and repentance. And I pray this in your name. Amen.